0: Good evening, I invite you to open your Bibles this evening to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Tonight we're beginning a a new series, an Advent series, uh, just entitled Old Testament Signs, Old Testament Signs, and we're going to be going through the Old Testament, just a bit of an overview, but looking at the... Uh, things that point specifically to Jesus Christ as we prepare to celebrate uh, His birth. And we're not doing this out of uh, sort of idle curiosity. Oh, that's neat. Look at that. That, that points to Jesus. Uh, we're doing this out of the conviction that the Old Testament, which you may have noticed is the, the largest portion of your Bible, um, the, the Old Testament was given to us by God specifically so we would understand who Jesus is. Um, One of the the tragedies in the American evangelical church over the last maybe 100 years is that the Old Testament has sort of been relegated to Sunday school. It has, you know, nice stories for the boys and girls about Daniel in the lion's den and and other uh, uh, David and Goliath's a good one, just stories that, that uh, capture the imagination and maybe teach a good moral. But other than that, um, there are many in the American church uh, who've sort of decided that the Old Testament is about the Jews and about uh, th- that system of salvation God had with the Jews, but the, uh, the New Testament is for Christians. And so we would uh, focus then on the New Testament. Well, um, praise God, all the Bible is uh, for Christians, but we need to remember that uh, our understanding of who Christ is is going to be crippled severely if we do not understand the Old Testament. When uh, when Jesus, if you remember in the Gospel of Luke, and Lord willing, we'll be getting to that shortly, but Luke 24, so Jesus is resurrected from the, from the dead, and he's uh, on the road with these two disciples who don't know who he is. And they're grieving because they're, the one they thought was the Messiah is dead. And Jesus, uh, we're told, begins to talk to them. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the Scriptures have said. And what does he do? He begins with Moses and the prophets and teaches them everything the Bible says about him. He doesn't just say, look, it's me. He wants them to see who he is from the scriptures. When Paul begins his ministry, Paul uh, goes to the the, uh, the synagogues, and he would open the scriptures, and he would explain to people who Jesus is from the scriptures. And so uh, we're going to do uh, just that. We're going to go to the Old Testament in the coming weeks, in the Sunday evenings, and we're going to look at uh, not just prophecies, but uh, redemptive themes and redemptive acts uh, that, that Clearly, um, lay out like a holding uh, the the multifaceted of a diamond, uh, all these different beautiful aspects of who Jesus is, and why He came. We're going to begin tonight with the first gospel promise, way back in Genesis three fifteen. And so, if you have your Bible, turn to me Genesis three, and we're going to look specifically at verse sixteen. Derek Thomas says, with the possible exception of John 3.16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and definitive than Genesis 3.15. Sinclair Ferguson says, the entire rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. So it's a significant verse. If you remember the historical context, God has made Adam and Eve. They are in the Garden of Eden, but they have fallen into sin as Eve was, was first deceived by the devil, and then Adam followed her. And so let's just pick it up at verse 1 so we catch the context. <clears throat> 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So far the reading in God's word this evening. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, we come because we believe your word is a word of life. We believe your word is powerful. It's able to divide between bone and marrow. It's able to discern our thoughts. It's able to raise the dead to life. Father, we thank you that in this day of grace, uh, you have gracious purposes, and I pray, Lord, that tonight you would show us Jesus in his beauty, his glory, his victory, that we would love him, that we would trust him. Uh, Lord, that we would gladly serve the day, uh, you, uh, live the days of our life serving him and, and knowing that one day we shall be with him. So, Lord, show us Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Austin Brown <coughs> writes this about Genesis 3.15. The significance of this passage can scarcely be overstated. In one short statement, the underlying theme and meaning of all history is laid bare. Here in Genesis 3.15... uh, we have really the explanation for why the world is the way it is. And, and um, more importantly, we have here uh, God's gracious response. The title of my message tonight is The First Gospel Sermon. The first gospel sermon, I take that from a quote from Spurgeon, who says, This is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered upon the surface of this earth. It was a memorable discourse. Indeed, with Jehovah himself for the preacher and the whole human race and the prince of darkness for the audience. God delivers this uh, first message, and he delivers it to a world that has been devastated by sin. He delivers it to, um, to a man and a woman who have tragically... Turned away from the clear command of God. The God whom they knew, the God whom they loved. And yet the devil, through a serpent, has deceived Eve, has suggested that God was was not telling the truth, that God was holding out, and and Eve saw that the the fruit looked good, and and it seemed seemed, uh, to make one wise, and and so she took it, and she ate it, and and she even gave some to her husband, who was right there. And Adam, who should have at that moment judged sin as God's vice-regent on earth, instead... Fearing to lose the relationship with a woman, decides to go with the woman and to sin against God with her, and he also ate, and now God shows up. They immediately were told, knew that they had sinned in a profound way. They, they realized that they were naked. They, so the, they, they have the experience of deep shame, of overwhelming shame, shame that, that, um, that is screaming that they are exposed and vulnerable and they need to hide and, and they need to cover themselves. And so they, they make loincloths for themselves and they go hide in, in, the, in the wood, whatever it might be nearby, because God was in the garden and they were polluted and filthy and they could not they could not bear his gaze but but god calls them out <clears throat> and he said who told you you were naked and of course it's their conscience and their their wounded conscience is all that testimony that's needed god says did you eat of the tree that I clearly commanded you not to eat. The boys and girls, you ever have that where uh, you, you, you did something that your, your parents explicitly told you, whatever you do, do not do this, and then, well, you did that. And, they come, and then they come to you and, and they say, well, didn't we tell you specifically not to do that? Didn't we say specifically, don't do this, because if you do this, this, this other thing is going to happen, and, and don't you remember us saying that, and boys and girls, you remember how awful it feels when you, when you have to confess? You, you do remember that they told you not to do that. Don't play with matches. This is what will happen. And then he played with matches, and it did happen, and... And you can't say you didn't know. And there's Adam and Eve. They're completely, absolutely exposed as disobedient rebels. They have, there's no excuse, no reason whatsoever for, for their behavior. They've sinned against God. They've made themselves allies with the devil. And now they stand under the just sentence of God because God had told them very specifically, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve knows God said that. She told the devil that's what God said. Of course, he said, you won't surely die, but here they stand in their tragedy, in their crisis, in their utter ruin. Here the crown of God's creation has has abandoned God and and joined the, the enemy of God. And of course, this is not just Adam and Eve's story. This is the story of the world. This is the story of, of, this, of the lost human race that we belong to. This is why somebody down in, near Austin, Texas today decided to go into a church of slightly over 50 people and, and half of them are dead tonight. And this is why we experience all the tragedies in our own personal lives. Every, every tragedy, every loss, every heartache, every broken promise, every betrayal, every sickness every unfulfilled longing, all the sin that has been committed against you and all the sin that you commit against other people, it all flows out of this awful moment when the world was was lost to sin. And God would have been just at that moment, of course. God would have been perfectly just to just be done for Adam and Eve to die immediately um, and be done with the human race, be done with the whole endeavor. He did not create a world because he lacked something. He did not create Adam and Eve because he was lonely or was feeling in need of relationship. He was perfectly happy, gloriously content in the uh, eternal love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, together, they, 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 the, when they said, let us make man, they could have said, and let us damn man now um, so that the glory of God is, is not marred in any way. Because the glory of God, you see, is what God pursues, and and yet God finds a way there at the beginning of creation to magnify His glory and His grace and to deal with the sin of man. So he comes and he gives this, this message, this sermon. There's two main points tonight. First is the war, secondly is the outcome. The war and the outcome. Notice God comes and he he doesn't speak first to Adam and Eve. First he addresses the serpent because sin has come into the world through the serpent. The devil is the author of this crime. And as far as the devil can see, he's won the victory. I mean, humanity is now in his grasp. He knows who Adam is. Adam is the head of the human race. uh, And and in Adam's fall, the the human race falls. The human race now has become... um, part of his army and his war against God. But, but he didn't count on this. I, I, I'm thinking that Adam maybe thought he, that God would just pronounce the damnation, the, the condemnation, and, uh, and, and Satan certainly would be happy to accuse Adam and Eve now that he's deceived them. But, God, but Satan um, was not expecting God to come and say, uh, the story's not over. I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, I will put enmity. Notice God takes the initiative, and all the story of redemption is, is God taking the initiative, isn't it? Um, this doesn't just happen. God is, is doing something, working out His purposes to the praise of His glorious grace, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. But notice what, what God puts into the world. He puts enmity. We tend to think of enmity as a bad thing, synonyms would be hostility, animosity, hatred. Uh, we would think those would be things that, that ought to be avoided. But God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, her offspring. You see, what God does is, is He says, I'm going to create a race in the world from the woman who hate the devil, who hate the works of the devil. He's going to, he's going to do that work, and He needs to do that work because, by nature, our, our hearts love sin, we love what is evil. But God's going to preserve for himself a people who are eager to do what is good. And and if if you're a Christian tonight, you you can happily testify that this has happened to you. That at some point, uh, God engaged you and met you and and woke you up to the truth about your sin. And and you're finding that the Spirit of God um, is changing that heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. And the things that you used to to love, you're now more and more... you're beginning to hate and despise. Isn't that true? Isn't that? That's the work of sanctification. That's God at work in your life. If you are just in love with yourself and the world and its pleasures as you were 10 years ago, something's fundamentally wrong. But if you're finding within you this growing distaste and, and hatred of sin, beginning with your very own, That you see what it is and you see what it does and you see where it comes from and and, and not only the damage it does to people but the the damage it does to the the name of God and and you, you are just getting hungry for righteousness and eager for Christ Jesus to come and be done with it, to put all this sin and wickedness to an end. That's what God does. And so God comes with this grace of enmity. He's, going to, he's, he's not giving up on the human race. He is, he's going to be working through the human race, and as a result, there's going to be two kingdoms. There's going to be your offspring and her offspring, two children, the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. I want you to see the, the surprising grace of God here. Notice that God takes the woman, the one who first fell into sin, And God specifically makes her a key part of the redemptive story. Eve must have been astonished as God pronounces his judgment on the devil to hear that she is going to to play a critical role. Her offspring are going to belong to God and, 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 and her offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. And this surprising grace apparently was recognized by Adam. I wonder if you've ever noticed that Adam does not name Eve until after the fall, at least as the text records it. Um, verse 20 of three, chapter 3, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now that's a beautiful name for this woman. She could have very rightfully, justly, uh, justly been called the mother of the dying. She has brought death into the world. But you see, grace meets her in her failure and sin and, and exalts her and gives her a new name, a, new, a, a name that corresponds to the, the purposes, the saving purposes of God for the glory of God. Grace is God's response even here at the very beginning. But God says there's going to be, there's going to be an antithesis in the world. There's going to be those who belong to God and call upon the name of the Lord, and there's going to be those who belong to the devil and do his will. Spurgeon says, the church of God and the synagogue of Satan both exist. We see an Abel and a Cain, an Isaac and an Ishmael, a Jacob and an Esau. Those that are born after the flesh, being children of their father, the devil, do his works. But those that are born again, being born after the Spirit, after the power of the life of Christ, are thus in Christ Jesus, the seed of the woman, and contend earnestly against the dragon and his seed. There is an antithesis in the world. We don't hear that word very often. Maybe we don't think about it very often. But it is that there are, there are, uh, there's the city of man and the city of God. And there's an enmity that exists between them, and it is not a, it's not a gentle animosity. Notice from the text that this is a war to the death. God says, you shall bruise his heel to the serpent, and he shall crush your head. Austin Brown had a nice article on this. He says, this enmity isn't of a casual sort, as if the citizens of each kingdom are at a ball game rooting for a different team. This isn't Michigan versus Michigan State. He says, the antipathy and opposition will be nothing less than absolute, resulting in the shedding of blood and even the taking of life. It is warlike hostility. This is going to be a fight to the death. And you see that, the nature, the murderous nature uh, on the part of the devil immediately. Cain is born. Eve, thinking that this is the one, uh, rejoices, and yet how disappointed she is when Cain shows his spiritual lineage, and murders righteous Abel. Cain belongs to the line of the devil. And then all through the scripture, we have that that battle going on between those who belong to God and are called according to his purpose and those who belong to the father of the devil. And so you see in Israel, uh, Israel in Egypt, Pharaoh, clearly a murderous uh, Son of the devil, slaughtering the baby, slaughtering the offspring of Israel in his war against God. You see Israel and Canaan, all the battles that are taking place there. And even um, if you're trying to wrestle with what, how to make sense of uh, Israel um, and the slaughter that takes place at the hand, by the hands of Joshua and the armies of Israel as they clean out the land of Canaan. Just consider that in this holy war, um, God is about... Carrying out holy justice. I just remember Meredith Klein back at Westminster teaching us about, you know, here in the, in the Garden of Eden you have the temple of God, and it needs to be pure, and that's why Adam and Eve are, are removed. And then the land of Canaan becomes a type of the, of the temple of God, and the land must be pure, and evil must be purged, and so the Canaanites are purged from the land. We're told in the new heaven and the new earth there will be no sin there. It'll be pure. Well, this is the battle that's taking place. The antithesis is real. It's radical. Austin Brown again says, God hates sin and Satan hates holiness. The disagreement isn't over one issue or even four issues, but a whole totality of issues. It's a conflict of worldviews. There is a real antithesis. It must be stated clearly. The conflict is total and irreconcilable, and all of humanity occupies one of the two camps. There are no casual observers in the stadium of life. It's a message that people need to hear. Because we think maybe we can be a casual observer and we see this side has a point or that side has a point. We like some things about this side and other things about this side. Well, We just need to realize we are on one one side or the other. Uh, There's a line that runs all through human history. There's an antithesis and you are on one side of that line or you are on the other side of that line. So Jesus says no man can serve two masters. Either you're going to serve your God mammon, your idols, or you're going to serve God himself, but, but you're, going to be, you're going to love the one and you're going to be hostile to the other. Paul says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they're hostile to him. You can't please God when you hate him. James, James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You have to pick a side. You are on one side or the other. I think a lot of American Christians have to, to think seriously about the reality of an antithesis. We become very comfortable in our culture. We, we mold and meld very easily in our culture. We, we like what the culture likes. We, we pursue a lot of the same uh, passions and desires and interests and, and more and more um, sort of molded by the principles of our culture. So things that would have shocked and stunned our ancestors, our Christian ancestors 100 years ago, we can feel quite comfortable participating in, I think particularly in terms of entertainment. So we've got to pick a side. I read a fascinating article by Rod Dreher this past week um, just talking about how in our, in our culture we're going to be forced to pick a side. That the culture is increasingly becoming hostile to Christianity. Christianity, you, you, you could be a Christian and you could, be, you could uh, easily be the head of a, of a, of a major business and, and, and no one would have a problem with that. But now if you're a Christian and you're head of a, ma- a major uh, company um, and, and it's known that you agree with what the Bible says about homosexuality, you're going to have issues. You're going to have to pick a side. Rod Dreher just talks about uh, his concern that young evangelical Christians are not being tra- taught this, and they're not being trained just basic Christian truth. So, so, so they're being molded by the society. They think like the society in terms of of homosexuality and social justice issues. They they've adopted the society's uh, frameworks and categories. And so, uh, so, so he makes this 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 prediction that when these young people are in leadership positions, uh, they won't have to hide unpopular opinion from society at large. They won't have any unpopular opinions. I hope he's wrong. But that's what we're facing. Jesus says the world will hate you. Paul says all those who desire to lead a godly life will be persecuted. And this, friend, is by the act of God. It's not an accident. To this you were destined. To this you were called, the New Testament writers say. This is God putting enmity between you and the devil so that you hate sin, you hate what is evil. You love sinners, you love people who are lost and in bondage to the devil. Your heart grieves for them, you you yearn for them to be saved, but you hate the acts of the devil. You hate everything about the devil. You take no pleasure in any of his works. You realize that you belong to Jesus. There's going to be, there is a war that's taking place, but the outcome is secure. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, so God here pronounces uh, the gospel that there is one who's going to come. He, singular, the, 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 the seed of the woman, <clears throat> is going to do something in some way that is going to be a fatal blow. The word bruise here, it can also be translated as crush. Uh, the contrast is between the, the seriousness of, of the crushing. So, um, to be crushed in your heel is very painful. To be crushed in your head is fatal. That's the contrast. Someone is going to come and, and do that, that fatal work to the serpent, to the devil that is represented in the serpent. And it's fascinating. I don't have time tonight to get through it all. But if you just follow the Old Testament story, you'll see little images of what's going to happen to the serpent. Uh, Judges 4, you can read that maybe uh, tonight. Judges 8 is another one. Judges 4, you have um, the, the Sisera, the commander of the army of Jabin, the, uh, the king of the Canaanites, making war with Israel. And Sisera is, is uh, tired. He goes into the tent of Jael. And remember what Jael does? With a tent spike? Right through the temple, crushes his head. Judges 4, Judges 8, Abimelech is a, is a wicked, wicked man who shows his murderous nature by killing his 70 brothers so that he can have uh, rule in Israel. And, uh, and what happens to Abimelech? Well, he, he assaults a tower and, and some lady drops a stone on his head and crushes him. Remember the story of David and Goliath? How does the great enemy of God, uh, this this uh, this Philistine who despises God and makes war with God's people, uh, how does he die? Well, he, he suffers a stone to his head. His head is crushed. And he falls down dead and defeated. And all these are just little snapshots all through the Old Testament story. You can find more of them where uh, God is telling us that someone's going to come and do this great work of destroying the devil and his work. And then a son is born, a seed of the woman. One who really is, in a unique way, of course, the seed of the woman, because he alone is virgin-born. No one else has ever, obviously, been virgin-born, but Jesus is, and Jesus, as he goes about his ministry, goes about warfare. That's why he enters into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the first thing he does. It's, in a sense, the the invasion of the allied forces at Normandy. The the, the battle is on. I just read a great book. I'm sure you've heard of it, The Longest Day. Can't remember the author, but he talks about the German officer who first saw the um, the vast armada, over seven thousand Allied ships. He he he. There were paratroopers dropping down. They were getting reports, and he was concerned that the invasion might be happening there. But so he went to his bunker right over the beaches, and he and he took his glasses and he scanned the horizon. Nothing. And then he did it again a half hour later. Nothing. He kept doing this, and and finally he said to his men, "Well, it's not clearly. It's not going to happen." And uh, but I'll, one last look, and and he begins to scan the horizon, and it's like. Out of uh, just like a mirage, like a miracle, suddenly the mist had lifted and there are over 7,000 ships standing directly off the coast of Germany. And and the the writer says he was moved as he had never been moved before in all of his life. Stunned. He called his his commanding officer and said, the invasion is here. There has to be 10,000 ships out there. And and his officer barked back and says, there can't be 10,000 ships. Nobody owns 10,000 ships. And he said, he said to that man, well, you just come and see for yourself. It's fantastic. And yet he says he knew as calmly and certainly as he knew anything in his entire life that this was the end of Hitler's Third Reich. I think that's how the devil felt when Jesus Christ appears. As you see, the glory of God and the love of God, willing to send the second person of the Trinity in human form to Earth. And Jesus begins by attacking. He goes and he takes uh, and he meets the devil in the wilderness. And the wilderness and, and the devil throws everything he has at him, all his the temptations that he knows. And Jesus responds with what the word says, it is written, it is written, it is written, and he defeats uh, the devil there, unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ stands, and and now having won that victory, now he goes and he begins to destroy the works of the devil in plain sight, he heals the sick under the bondage of sin, and, and cast out demons, and he raises the dead, publicly displaying what he's about, he battles the devil in, in personal form in some senses. he takes on the Pharisees. and Remember what he says to them. John had called them a brood of vipers, offspring of the serpent. Jesus says, you're just like your father. You're murderers and you're liars just like your father. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue and you do exactly the same thing. How shall you escape the wrath of God which is to come? And when Jesus went to the cross, he was battling as he satisfied the law, as he fulfilled all righteousness, and he, as he bore our sin and, and made atonement for our sin by his, the, 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 the sacrifice of his body, and, and as he laid down his soul in death, this innocent man, this righteous man bearing our iniquities and our sins, he, he silenced the law, and he disarmed the principalities and the powers. That's what Paul says in Colossians 2, that Jesus disarmed them. He he, he ripped the weapons out of the devil's hands. He put them to open shame, triumphing over them by his death on the cross. So when Jesus said, it is finished, it was Jesus throwing down that stake of victory, the flag of his accomplishment in this world. He had accomplished redemption. The devil was a defeated foe. Judah's lion had crushed the serpent's head. And the battle continues to rage, but it's just like when the, when the allies landed in Normandy, it was just a matter of time. And, and, the, and the, the, the great victory had already happened in Christ Jesus. The outcome was still unsure when the allies hit the, hit the beaches, but, but, but we know exactly what the outcome is. But we're still in the war, aren't we? And we still suffer, don't we? Paul says, I fill up in my body what is lacking in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Not saying that Christ somehow didn't suffer enough, but Paul says that what I'm doing as I suffer, as I'm beaten, as I'm stoned, as I'm uh, I'm shipwrecked, as I suffer, I'm I'm showing the world who I belong to, who I follow. And I'm I'm engaged in his cause the way that he was engaged in, in the cause, with suffering. And so the bruises continue. God's people suffer, and some of you are suffering deeply, even tonight. But you see, as we suffer in faith following Jesus Christ, we know what it's about. We're waging war with principalities and powers, Paul says, not with flesh and blood. We're waging war with rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and we wage war as those who belong to Jesus Christ in the confidence that we do conquer by faith. It's faith, you see, that conquers. It's faith. When I see p- people going through great struggle and great sorrow and heartache and they have no idea why God is doing what he's doing, they can't fathom how this could possibly be part of a of, of a good purpose or, or how this could possibly be used in some way to make this awful loss and this heartache worthwhile. And, and God doesn't tell us, you see, what how it's all going to work out. He doesn't, he doesn't give us the, 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 the example, the illustration of this is going to affect this and that's going to work that. We're not told that. And yet God calls us to believe, to have faith, and faith is the victory. Revelation chapter 12, John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. They, listen, they have conquered him. The followers of Jesus have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death they loved Jesus more than they loved their life more than they loved their dreams more than they loved their families more than they loved anything about themselves they loved Jesus and when they came to Jesus they gave it all to him and for him to use as he would just recently heard just reminded of the story of John Williams a man who at an early age in his early 20s decided with his wife young wife that they would be missionaries in the Pacific Islands, an area that had been just sort of discovered and opened up. And so they went so, so far away from home, knowing uh, they would maybe never go back. They actually went back one time in a a period of 20 years. uh, 1839, John Williams, um, they discovered some new islands. They had already planted a church in Samoa, and and they discovered a new island. and, And so John Williams and another went there. These islands were known for being fierce people, cannibals. John Williams and his friend landed on the shore. They lived for 30 minutes before uh, they were clubbed to death and, and cannibalized. But then you see, the word came back to Samoa. The devil was determined to keep the, these people in his grip, but the word made it back to Samoa. The people on the ship had watched it all happen. And nearly 100 native Samoan believers who had come to faith in Jesus Christ under John Williams' ministry decided that they were going to go take up this cause and, and they traveled to this island and a church was planted and the devil's purpose was not fulfilled. The church grew and thrived because one man, you see, was, did not love his life even unto death and, and by faith in Jesus Christ he conquered the outcome friends is secure. Romans 16:20 Paul says this amazing thing at the end of his letter the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so we fight this this battle. And it's hard and it's long and sometimes very disappointing and and often heartbreaking. But we have this absolute confidence. We have this, con- this promise from God that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You are going to stand one day in the victory of Jesus Christ and know that in some way God allowed you to participate in this battle. In some way the glory and the honor, though it all belongs to Jesus Christ, he shares it with you. And so friends, that's where we live. Genesis 3.15 tells us we live in a world where there's a war. But it's a war that the outcome has been absolutely determined in Jesus Christ. And so, as you live your life this coming week, friends, don't be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed to be counted as one who belongs to Him. Never be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to take a stand with those who are mocked because uh, they believe. Uh, Don't be afraid to take a stand for what is true and what is good and what is right and what is pleasing to God, no matter what uh, the world might say. Don't don't be afraid. Don't trade your relationship with the world the way Adam did with Eve. Don't trade your relationship with the world for victory in Jesus Christ. Follow him. Trust him. Live in faith. And one day we're going to see him as victors. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, you know, Lord, that some of us are suffering tonight. And it's hard. It's scary, maybe. And there's fear, and there's anxiety, and there's, there's grief, tears. But oh, God, I thank you that you've not allowed us to lose our faith. And through the tears, we hold on to a victorious Jesus Christ. And more importantly, He holds on to us. Oh Father, we 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 live in a world where there's so much so much anguish. And yet, thank you, O oh Lord, that You've spoken Your Word and You've given Your promise and You've sent Your Son to, to seal that promise with His own blood. That the outcome is secure. That the devil's reign is limited and. And will soon come to an end. That He cannot do anything to us apart from Your sovereign good pleasure. We're safe in Your care. And Lord, I pray that You give us boldness then to speak into this world, as those who are living for the world that is yet to come. Oh God, give us love for lost, lost people, who are still in the darkness, still in bondage, who need who need to see the light. Oh God, give us. Uh, a a hunger to see Jesus Christ, the conqueror, the king, magnified in the saving of sinners. And as we follow after him, Lord, forgive us for our, our embarrassment about Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that in our work, in our entertainment, in the way we spend our money, in the way we use our sexuality, I pray that Jesus Christ, our precious king, would reign as Lord that we would love Him, that we would serve Him, that we would gladly lay everything down if we could in some small way join in this great cause. And one day, Lord, have the, the joy of seeing the victory secured and complete as the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea and there's no more death and no more crying, no more pain. Oh God, may that day come soon. Until then, Lord, keep us in the faith. Keep us following our victorious Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.